This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast for everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level. You came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, Chinese blogger, and is a competitive duck herding champion. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of Allset Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinospice.com, and eats Twinkie Wiener sandwiches for breakfast. In this episode, John and I break down a question from a listener about why we use two characters in Chinese to express words when it seems one character would suffice. This episode is full of information you probably didn't even know existed. Our guest interview is with Jacob Gill, the CEO of Scritter. He is one of our first guests who has achieved a high level of proficiency in Chinese without having spent extensive time in Asia. All this and more. Let's get to it. Welcome to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. I'm Jared Turner. Hey guys, I'm John Pasden. All right, Johnny. This is our ninth episode. Can you believe that? Yes. All right. Well, thanks for that enthusiastic response. <laughs> <laughs> Since our last episode. We have a really good listener question, and I think we want to start out this episode with addressing it. All right, let's do it. Okay, we have got an email from a fellow named Len Joseph. Len, thanks for the email. We had a little bit of exchange about this, and he asks a question. So Len says, "What conceptual or structural differences between Chinese and English would have sped up your learning had you realized them sooner?" Here's why I ask. My beginner level class just reached the six month mark. One of the students repeatedly asked teachers the same question about different words that were taught. If X character means Y, why can't X be used alone to express Y? For example, if Shui means sleep and Jiao means sleep, why must one say Wo Shui Jiao rather than simply Wo Shui? Every teacher gives him the same, in my mind, unhelpful answer. Yes, they both mean sleep, but to say to sleep, you need to use them together. My theory is that the very limited number of unique sounds in Chinese, and therefore potential for homophones, discourages single-character words where they might create ambiguity. For example, using lao before hu and shu, and tou after zhong and shi. But when I say theory, I mean that no one has told me this, and maybe I'm wrong. I'm yet to find any resource that explains conceptual differences that would help an English speaker. I'm sure you've both collected scores of these, and I hope you might share some. Wow, that was a really good question. All right, so I'm happy to confirm your theory. Yes, if you want to find more research on this, look up monosyllabic and polysyllabic Chinese words. Um, there's kind of this myth that Chinese is a monosyllabic language, that every character is a word, and that is not the case. I think it would be good to dig down into this a little bit because this, when I was learning Chinese, this was something that I did come across quite frequently. Why do I have to use two characters to express something versus just the one? That once again, yeah, he's, his theory is correct, but this would be really interesting to de deconstruct this. Yeah, if you want to read up a lot on the theory, um, one of the greats of uh, Chinese studies is John DeFrancis, and he talked about this, the myth of the monosyllabic Chinese language. And I think one of the things that, that helps to understand this issue is to um, know a bit more about linguistics. Uh, hopefully that's not too boring for you, but based on the way you asked your question, I think you're pretty into it already. If you think about the English language and where a lot of the words come from, 
Um, we have a lot of words that come from Old English and Middle English. A lot of them are really simple monosyllabic words like get and do and good. But then if you look at the the smart sounding words uh, that have lots of syllables, they tend to have Greek and Latin roots. So you know, have words like, you know, telegraphic, monosyllabic, you know, words like that. You might be studying English and you might be like, well, monosyllabic, that's such a big long word, but mono means one. So I just want to use mono to mean one. Well, we have the word one to mean one and mono means one in that word. And so Chinese actually works the same way. You have some characters that can be used on their own, and then you have other characters which are used in building words. We call these morphemes. Some of these are a part of a word and they can't be used on their own. Sometimes they can be used on their own and they can also be used as part of words. And learning all those building blocks is part of the joy of learning the Chinese language. You just got to learn how it works. One example that comes to mind is the word yingai. And this was one of my first exposures to this. Sometimes you have to use the two characters together, but you can also use a single character one time as long as it's in the proper context. So you can say, uh, I should do this, uh, but so you can just drop the ying and just say guy. Uh, yeah, that's true. You can say guy in, uh, in uh, informal Chinese and ingai is a bit more formal. So you can do that uh, with some of the words that you're going to be using in Chinese. And I'm just pulling out yin gai because that was one of the first exposures I had to this. And I think it's interesting how you, John, you're, you're pulling out a little bit of contrast in like in English because something that uh, you know, sometimes people say, oh, English is just this, the stupidest language or it's so hard. And, uh, and one example is like all the different uses of the word go. I have to go to work. Did everything go well? Go barefoot. How does that song go? My clothes won't go in the suitcase. Let go. And, you know, there's like a hundred different uses and the context can be totally different. But the point is behind that, it's about the context. So if, if there's su sufficient context, it gives the meaning to that character. And that's a little bit similar for Chinese because guy, you know, in guy, uh, you, if you're not saying it right, you know, you could think like maybe you're saying guy, like guy being a guy, like maybe you're changing or something, or it could be a different guy. But as long as you're using the proper context and it's grammatically correct, sometimes you can just use a single character to express what you mean as opposed to using the polysyllabic, sorry, the dual syllabic. Bisyllabic. Using the bisyllabic version of the word. Yeah, and of course you have to get the tones right. You have to say ingai or gai. Absolutely, and that just underscores the importance of tones, something we covered in our last episode. So you'll notice that there are quite a few words that have maybe one syllable that's kind of nonsense. And the reason is to make it a two-syllable word, which keeps it distinct from other words where you might get it mixed up. So, for example, the word for lion is shizu, and uh, you have this little zi on the end. And then the word for table is zhuozi. So again, you have this zi on the end, and it's essentially meaningless. It's just there to make it a two-syllable word so that you don't get it confused with other words. Uh, I've seen an interesting uh, result of this. Shizu is lion and Hozu is monkey. And then people learn the, the character for dog is pronounced go and they say gozu. But that's not right. It's actually just go 
or they learn the character for cat and it's mal and they and they say malza to mean cat but no that's not right either it's just mal so unfortunately it's not like super systematic like every animal you learn a character and you add it so then you have a new word um sometimes they are one character words but for example for shizu in particular you really need to differentiate it from other words because there's so many shi words so having it there in the end really does keep it a lot clearer so that people can understand what you're saying so john also we have some characters that are rarely used alone that they're pretty much every time you're going to encounter them in normal conversation or normal text they are paired with other characters. And I know one of those characters is like Ming, like Ming Tian or Ming Bai La. There are definitely characters that, are, that, that don't get tend to use alone, yeah. yeah and, and why is that? Why do we have some characters like that, which are pretty much used all the time with other characters, but some of them can also stand alone? Uh, <laughs> why? Why is anything uh, said the way it is? <laughs> I mean, there, there's, there's, there's like all these big historical reasons for a lot of it. Like in some cases, some like classical word morphed in its in its usage so that it became you know like a bound morpheme which means it can't be used by itself like in other cases something just appeared as a as a suffix or a prefix and that's just always the way it was used i i, I don't know it's uh i don't think there's any way to really answer that but if it's any consolation english is the same yeah absolutely i think this is great because it underscores the arbitrary nature of language in general sometimes people they complain that oh you know, English, it's so crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It uh, you have all these weird rules and stuff. Well, Chinese has that too. Pretty much every language has its own rules. There's, there's no language outside of Esperanto, which has just perfect organization of the language and the rule applies to every instance. Every language has its own quirks and its own weird things about it. And for those of you who don't know Esperanto, that was a, a man-made language. I guess they all are, but this one was specifically made to have like uniform rules. Yeah, languages aren't really man-made. They're, uh, they're kind of accidental. They evolve organically. So I think one of the things that makes English special and what makes it seem kind of eccentric is how it has so many loan words. And Chinese has loan words too, but English has a lot of loan words. And so with, uh, with Chinese, instead of having like Greek and Latin roots like you do with English, and English has a ton of uh, influence from French as well. Uh, in Chinese, you have like all these classical Chinese influences. And yeah, some some loan words, but so much of Chinese is just building on itself. So the really cool thing about Chinese is once you learn enough characters uh, and you start to build up a pretty decent vocabulary, you can really start to see how the system works with itself and how words are built out of all these building blocks you learned. So for example, when I, when I studied my master's in applied linguistics in Chinese, some people said to me, oh, that must be so hard. You know, you have to study linguistics in Chinese. But the cool thing about the way Chinese works, and this is true for any science and um, for a lot of uh, disciplines, is that once you get to a decently high level, all the words, they kind of just make sense. They're just recombining these characters and these words that, that you already know. And it's actually quite easy to pick up the high level vocabulary. It's the lower level vocabulary that's the struggle. I'd have to say that I have seen that in my Chinese as well, because you start learning individual character meanings. And for example, like the shui jiao that Len brings up, there's a lot of different words like that. You may learn the individual meaning of that character, but you'll see that same character in another word in a different context. This is very common in Chinese, right? We come across something in text and we see like, 
oh, I know these two characters, but I don't know what the word means together. But when you have the understanding of what those individual characters mean, it gives you context and clues to say, oh, maybe maybe it actually means this. And, and if you understand the greater context of the sentence and the paragraph, sometimes you actually just understand the meaning and you don't even need to look it up. And the greatest reward behind that is when you do guess the meaning and you're thinking like, oh, is it like this? And you look it up later and you're like, oh, that's exactly what it means. Just understanding these individual characters and these building blocks, it's really important because it gives that greater foundation to understanding the language at a higher level. Right, right. And to just give a, a, a more specific example of this, like from the question that was originally asked, the word homophone. And of course, you know, oh, homophone. Yeah, that comes from the Greek roots. Uh, homo meaning the same and phone meaning sound. And therefore, I know that a homophone is a word that sounds just like another word. In Chinese, it's tong yin si, which is literally same sound word. English, it sounds all, you know, fancy, like, oh, I'm, I'm using Greek to make my English. But in Chinese, it's just like building a very simple word, same sound word out of three characters and you're done doesn't take a long time to learn that once you know those three characters and the, and you have the context. I think also a good example for this is the word for like noun in Chinese. Noun is 名字, so it's literally like 名字的名,名字, so it's, you know, name word, which is pretty much what a noun is. Okay, so after saying all that in, in uh, response to this question, I'd like to revisit the very first sentence because I feel like we went on a bit of, of a tangent there. Um, the original question was, what conceptual or structural differences between Chinese and English would have sped up your learning had you realized them sooner? You know, we got into this whole monosyllabic, bisyllabic thing, but that's probably not how I would answer the question if I were to answer this question without seeing the rest of it. I think for me, one of the, the biggest conceptual differences that I didn't learn for a long time was to understand the difference between tense and aspect. So it's a grammar thing. To understand that a formal tense does not exist in Chinese. And just to get used to this idea of expressing the same information, but in a totally different way of thinking. And it actually took a while for me to understand how it even works in English. Because in English, we conflate tense and aspect. Tense is really just present, past, or future. So what you're saying is tense and aspect, is that just uh, expressing the passage of time or expressing past, present, and future in Chinese? Is that what you're referring to? So tense, uh, usually we're talking about formal tense. It's usually built into a verb, like in a, in a European language. And it's usually related to you know past, present, or future. Whereas aspect, yeah, relates to the flow of time. So when you talk about past perfect, you know, the perfect part is the aspect. Or when you talk about present progressive, the progressive part is the aspect. So uh, Chinese uh, indicates aspect not with, uh, you know, endings on verbs, but with particles, things like le and je and guo. And so understanding that what you're doing with these particles is expressing aspect and not tense is a little bit difficult to wrap your mind around. But I, I found it really useful. Um, and that way you, won't, you don't make the mistake that uh, or you probably still make, but you can get over the mistake um, that everyone makes in the very beginning with la, where it's like, oh, la is like ED in English. And then you just start throwing la around every time you, you talk about the past. And it takes you a while to realize like, oh, that's wrong. And oh, that's not exactly how la works. And oh, la can even be used for the future. So for us laymen, 
I think maybe the difference is like saying, you know, taking the word run, run, running, ran. And so that that is about the tense. But then the aspect is more of like, yesterday I went running. And then how to construct that sentence versus I am running right now or I'm going running tomorrow. Uh, running isn't a tense, but uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of like that. In, in, English is um, English is tricky. It is. It's hard to even give good examples in English because of the way everything's all jumbled up. So largely, this is just something that we need to understand in Chinese. But actually, if you've if you've studied European languages, you know Spanish, French, it, it'll it'll help you because you're forced to to understand these concepts in order to properly conjugate your verbs. Well, that's fascinating, John. <laughs> Almost just nodded off there on that one. No, I was just kidding, John. No, but I think that's interesting. So you're saying that if you understood this a little bit sooner, you would have helped you to, what, construct your grammar more properly or speak Chinese more fluently? How was that? Well, I think for a while I was kind of trying to learn the rules, right? Like, what's the rule for le? I know I keep getting it wrong, but I don't understand why. And I just want to know the rules so I can get it right. It helped to know that it wasn't the same as past tense. But another thing that helped with that was, especially with le in particular, because everyone struggles with le, is to learn in my advanced studies when I was still on this, this quest to learn the rules and finally get le totally down. I learned in my advanced studies that there are parts of China, like for example, the North and the South, where the native speakers of Chinese, of Mandarin Chinese, will differ and their answers as to what is grammatically correct when you use la. Hmm. So when I learned that, I was just like, wait a minute, there's no there's no absolute right and wrong for la. It kind of, I don't know, it kind of helped me because I, I was trying to find the right rules. Like I wanted to, to get it right. And so when I learned that, it just kind of helped me relax a bit. And I, I kind of went in a more, I don't know, philosophical direction and and just kind of soaked in the input a little more as opposed to the rules. And I, I think I think that relates also to extensive reading, right? Um, sometimes you just can't learn rules. You need to be exposed to the language more. This relates to listening and speaking as well as to reading and writing. So to answer that question for myself, like what, what sort of conceptual structural differences between Chinese and English would have helped me speed up my learning? Have I realized them sooner? What would have really helped me early on was I like to be able to see the contrast. For me, I think feel like I learn better when I see a sentence in English when this is maybe how it is in Chinese and, and understanding that concept more clear. And I think probably something that probably would have helped me a little earlier on is if I would have just even memorized some set sentences. And because what I did is I'd learned largely on the streets of Shanghai and just from coworkers and things like that. So I didn't really do a lot of textbook studying. And I think would have helped me of just simply, hey, like memorizing some set sentences. Because once you understand a sentence, then you can start swapping out different nouns and different verbs and stuff. It usually works that way. It doesn't always work that way. But that would have helped me early on because I would have been able to more construct like better ways to communicate and more correct sentences. And that's something I think it would help me. Eventually, it did help me a lot because what really helped my Chinese take off is when I found graded readers in Chinese and I read like uh, 10 books in three months and my Chinese just took off. 
because essentially that's what happened is that when I was reading, I started seeing all these things at context. I started seeing sentences, how things were used. And also my Chinese, I went from, you know, like kind of broken to conversational in about three months. And so for me, that's something I wish I would have have realized earlier. I wouldn't have been able to begin reading as early on, but having just that ability to see natural language, seeing a natural sentence, and just I can model it. And this was something that was talked about in our last podcast with David Moser. He's done, you know, was it Xiangsheng on, uh, you know, Chinese TV. He said a lot of times in his acts, he just takes some of these sentences he memorized and he'd apply them to everyday life. And it was super helpful for him. And so I wish I would have done that. I have, I have done that a lot since I just know, oh, this is a construct. This is how I can say something. And that really helps me. So that's something I wish I would have realized. Is sometimes you can just be a parrot. Sometimes you can do that. You can always do that. But a lot of times it can help you. All right. Kind of sounds like you needed a, a phrase book, huh? <laughs> phrase books, I mean, they have their place, right? Hey, I used a phrase book when I first got to China. I studied Chinese for three semesters before coming over, but I also got a good phrase book. So I think, you know, all the different things of learning Chinese, whether it's flashcards, a phrase book, you know, they have their place. Not any one of those things is going to make you fluent in the language, right? But they all have their place and we can learn from them. All right, we have a word from our sponsor. And as usual, our sponsor is Mandarin Companion. Yay. You sound so enthusiastic there, John. Yay. That's better. All right. So Manor Companion is publisher of easy-to-read novels in Chinese. And this is something that John and I started. We started this, gone, John, it's been about six years ago now, maybe seven. Seven. Six or seven years ago. One of the books I want to highlight is Journey to the Center of the Earth. This was a great adaptation. It's one of our level two books. So this book is written at a 450-character level. So if you have mastery of roughly 450 to 500 characters, this should be within your range. So it's an adaptation of the Jules Verne classic story, A Journey to the Center of the Earth. But this time we it's set in China. And the eccentric uncle, who is a geologist, he finds some ancient writings in a textbook, which leads them on a wild adventure to the center of the earth, where they encounter subterranean marvels and even the underground sea with a sea monster you can get it on amazon or on kindle kobo or ibooks so journey to the center of the earth and i do remember very clearly uh doing lots of editing in this book and uh, one of the challenges and i think it came out quite well was leaving out a lot of the words that you think you need but actually you don't in the original story especially there were words like tnt and all these ropes and climbing gear and we found ways to uh, eliminate a bunch of that vocabulary so you can stick to the story, uh, but learn vocabulary that's useful rather than TNT. So let's go on to rants and raves. John. Jared. I've got a rave for us. All right. Do you want me to start out? Yeah, do it. Okay. I have got a rave. And this rave is a homage to all those Chinese teachers out there, the ones that are working so hard. And specifically, I talk to a lot of teachers and what we do. And they understand that literacy is important for their students. And sometimes all that they have are access to is these kids' books, but they know that these kids' books aren't suitable for their students. And they're looking for something that's better and they just can't find it. And so my homage is to these teachers who go out there and they actually write a lot of their own materials or reading things for their students, whether it be adults or kids. And this is a hard thing to do. 
And I, I think if anyone has had a Chinese teacher out there who's actually tried to write a story or write something for you so you have something to read, I think that's sometimes a little bit underappreciated because it takes a lot of work to write a story and it takes a lot of work to write something that is at that student's level. And when you have a teacher putting in that extra effort to try to create something for you that you can read, it's, it's really an expression of this teacher really cares about your education and they care about the progress of your Chinese. And I just want to give a shout out to those people and an array for those people, for those, especially for those teachers who are really working hard, that they want to help their students progress in their Chinese, and they're really they're creating their own materials. And so I've met a lot of teachers like this, and whenever I come across a teacher who's done that type of stuff, I'm like, you're amazing. Thank you. And so this is my rave. Those teachers out there who are creating their own reading materials for their students because they really care about their progress and their education. 谢谢老师们，辛苦了。All right, so my turn.、Uh, I guess I'll do a rant, a little negative energy to offset your positive energy there. Awesome. Yeah, I think what I'd like to talk about is something I see out there a fair amount for different products, apps, or books helping you to learn Chinese characters. I frequently see something along the lines of check out our. Really cool new method to learn Chinese or secret way of learning Chinese, and the way to learn Chinese, specifically Chinese characters, is to understand how the characters break down into components, and many of them have meanings. Some of them represent sound, and that's their secret method. It's like, guys, that is not your secret method. That is literally the structure of the writing system that is Chinese characters. Chinese people themselves could not remember these thousands of characters if they did not have this structure.、Um, that would be too many random squiggles for any brain to store. So the fact that they, you know, they break down into left side, right side, top, bottom—that some of them are meaning components, some of them are sound components. Our brains need that so that we can build the system and we can keep it all in there. So yeah, use that to learn characters. Understand the structure. That is good. But I'm、um, sorry, you didn't invent a new method.、Uh, the Chinese kind of did that when they came up with Chinese characters. <laughs> How's that for a rant? <laughs> that's, that's a good rant. I, I like that. He says you didn't invent any new method. Did the Chinese did? Yep. So have you invented any new methods, John? Well, actually,、uh, on the on the topic of new methods, one thing that is kind of controversial and interesting is. When you're learning all these character components to help you learn characters, do you need to learn the actual historic meaning of each component and how it relates to a specific character, or can you just kind of give the component any meaning? Maybe every single character that has this component, give it the same meaning, and then create random stories to help you remember it. Like, which way is the better way to go? What do you think, Jared? I, I I don't know, man. <laughs> Punting on this one, eh? All right. Well, my answer to this question is:、um, if the component makes sense to you, you know, like the person radical looks kind of like Ren, and you can kind of see how it was originally a drawing of a person. If it makes sense to you, then yes, you should use it. However, there are some characters where the components. They have changed a lot over time. They don't look anything like the original, or they mean something 
that another component also means, but this one is much more obscure and the story for the origin of the character doesn't make any sense to you. I think when you come across a character like that, it's time to get creative because uh, a lot of those origins, they, they, I, I don't find them helpful. And um, if you can come up with a little story that's largely consistent with the kind of fact-based uh, meanings of components that you've already learned, then I think you're doing all right. Okay, so there is a confession there. There is a character that I like, and I don't know if it really plays into exactly what you're trying to say. But you know what that character is? No. Jiong, because it looks like a sad face. <laughs> it's like slang for just being kind of like, you know, sad or embarrassed or awkward or something. It's, you know, Jiong. It's great. It's, it's the original. It is the original Chinese emoji. Yep. Yeah, not really what I'm talking about, but okay. You're gonna put you're gonna put that character in our uh, in our podcast notes. Absolutely. So you guys, you can see this one, Jiong. It's great. It's the original Chinese emoji. Okay, I think I'm ready to rock. That's Jacob Gill. I am the CEO of Inkren. Probably most of you might know that business as Squitter. And he's from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I now live in San Jose, California, with my wife and kid. Now, Jake started learning Chinese 12 years ago in college. But his first efforts in learning a language were a little bit unsuccessful. I, I thought it was a linguistic failure in middle school and high school. This will resonate with anyone who's ever felt like they just can't learn a language. Stay with us. I took German. You know, I never really used it outside of the classroom. And my grades were not very hot. So conjugating verbs and things like that, I'm like, I can't do it. You know, I, I think at the time... Naively, I was under the impression that learning a second language as uh, someone who's a little bit older was um, one of those magical skills that you either had or you didn't. And then I graduated from high school and I lived in Indonesia for about a month with a friend. I got this like once in a lifetime opportunity to go out there and I started speaking some Indonesian and using it and hearing it every day. And now I don't really remember very much Indonesian. But at the time, it was the realization that, wow, if you like immerse yourself in a culture, engage with people, communicate, listen, you know, you don't really need to go into the classroom and practice per se, uh, and you can get a quite a, a good experience. Uh, and I think that really kind of shifted me a lot, just mentally. And so when I went back to university, I thought, well, maybe I'm not too old to learn a language. Thankfully for myself, I, I picked up some Chinese and started studying and fell in love. Well, why did you decide to start studying Chinese? I mean, it sounds like you had studied German. I guess it wasn't a good experience for you. And then you studied and learned a little bit of Indonesian. So what drew you to Chinese? Fate, I suppose. And I don't really like to use that term, but I was out with some friends. Uh, they were actually at the same university as me. And we were out like for coffee and drinks one night, um, having some food. And one of them was taking Chinese. One of them was taking Japanese. Both of them were planning on studying abroad. And they were talking about how great the program was uh, at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which is where I graduated. I, like that night, I, I came home and I, I had enrolled in classes. I was a little bit of a late bloomer college-wise. I took like a three-year break. I did some work. Uh, my friend and I opened a business and we were dealing with some car parts and uh, like importing them from Japan. I used to work on cars. So I was actually kind of attracted to the Japanese language first and culture. Uh, but when I went to go sign up for classes, uh, the Japanese classes were full. 
And I didn't realize at the time that like an enthusiastic student who walks in and says, hey, I want to learn Japanese uh, could probably get in on one of those classes. So I was like, ah, forget it. I'll just take Chinese. <laughs> and like the rest is kind of history, man. It's pretty, it was pretty ridiculous. So you were kind of a mechanic, it sounds like, and a mechanic linguist now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I would consider myself a mechanic anymore. Uh, but it was it was definitely fun to to work on cars and, and to do something outside of high school. I mean, I got a lot of life experience and that really kind of helped me when I got to college. Like I just channeled my energy into, hey, I want to be here. You know, I'm serious about school. And that made it really not easy. Right. But I was motivated and I, I liked showing up to class. I really enjoyed my Chinese lesson specifically. You know, that's what we're kind of talking about on this podcast. But like before I went into the program, uh, I listened to this was, you know, back in 2007, like 2006 ish, I feel is when podcasts really kind of started to get popular. And one of the ones that was featured at the time was Chinese pod. Uh, and so I started taking some of their introductory classes, like before even university. And I walked in on the first day and I think I was like, hey, ni hao, wo jiao, Jake. And my teacher just looked at me like, oh, <laughs> your pronunciation's really good. And I, like from that moment on, I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. I don't know. She, you know, I can do this. Yeah. Right. So I guess that was also your early exposure to John Pazden, right? You know, I was in the newbie stuff. So it was Ken and Jenny. And then I got some John. And, and I mean, it was great. I loved listening to Chinese pod. It was definitely um, a good filler of some of the gaps uh, that, you, you know, classroom uh, Mandarin can only teach you so much. So if you want to learn more, you know, you got to go out and find some additional resources. So it was very helpful. Well, talk about your educational experience there in university. What was it like? What were your professors like? What was the course like? My first year was very interesting. I had a Taiwanese teacher, I had a mainland uh, Chinese teacher, and I had a foreigner. Um, as a teacher. And so we had three teachers in the 101 program and they kind of rotated. So we got this really nice exposure of different accents um, and different kind of like tips and tricks along the way. I owe a lot of my early success to my the, the foreign teacher, uh, Olausher, Andy Olson, who's a good friend of mine now. He's still actually at the UW-Milwaukee Chinese program. Uh, he runs it now. Seeing him, hearing him speak Chinese, it was really motivating. It's like, I can do this too. But I think the university experience for me was, uh, it was fantastic. It wasn't a very big program, but we did have four years of Chinese. I also studied abroad while I was in um, undergrad. I went to Taiwan. Uh, I was at Mandarin Training Center for nine months as a second year uh, in school. And that was, I mean, that was like life changing, right? Going abroad and, and, and studying abroad was was super good for my Chinese. It was very fun. Uh, and when I got back, you know, I was ready for, I think I skipped a level, went to third year Chinese. I studied in China, uh, as well when I was an undergrad. I don't know. I took every class I could. I think I graduated, uh, with something like 80 credits or something in Chinese alone. So something's interesting I'd like to hear about was, mm -hmm. uh, you said you had a professor who was, I guess, an American, right? He wasn't mm -hmm. a, a native born Chinese. In the Chinese teaching community, there are some non-Chinese Chinese teachers. There's not a lot of them, but they're out there. In talking with them, and sometimes I've had opportunity to interact with their students, many have had really good experiences with them. Could you maybe share a little bit about what was your experience? What was that contrast like having a, I guess, as we'd say from a China perspective, a foreign uh, Chinese teacher versus having a native Chinese person who was a teacher? 
They complemented each other very nicely, actually, in the classroom. We could have model pronunciation from the native speakers. And not to say that the foreign teacher's pronunciation wasn't good, but it wasn't native. So there's differences. And there's also just like from a linguistical feeling, I'm thinking in Chinese of yugan, like to hear something and know like this is correct or incorrect. And maybe with a foreign teacher, you don't get that as much. Like you have a question. And I think oftentimes, uh, you know, when I I was also a teacher before working for Scooter, there were moments when students would ask me, you know, hey, what is the deal with this word? Why is it different from that word? And, and sometimes I didn't know. But what I did know and what was really useful to me from having this kind of foreign perspective as a teacher was they understood my struggles. You know, tones, hey, these are a new thing. Pay attention to them. You know, pay attention to that third tone. Here's how we might kind of sound it out. You know, characters being a little bit daunting, right? Here's some tips or tricks that this teacher used to overcome that kind of barrier uh, to entry. So having that experience in the classroom was, I mean, it was, it was precious. It was really nice. And I think that, I mean, you just pick up on things a little bit different from a native speaker, right? Like we've been through the struggles that our students have and we get to relate to them in a different way. Uh, it's fun and it's exciting. And I, I think it is, it is very encouraging, I think, for the, for the student um, at that point to see someone who, who didn't start as a native speaker, who wasn't exposed to this from day one um, when they were born um, and still take their language to a degree where they can walk into a classroom and teach you something about it. And so how would you contrast your perspective of teaching Chinese versus maybe a native Chinese person who's teaching Chinese as a second language? There's a lot of factors that go into that. Uh, my teaching experience, just to give uh, the listeners some background. So when I was an undergraduate, I, I took a summer and I was at a, a language camp, Sunlinhu, uh, which is run by Concordia Language Universities. Um, and these are for children, I think ages six to like 17. They have the high school students that come in. And this is a 100% immersion program. But when you're there as a counselor, which I was, uh, you're also a teacher. Hmm. Um, so we spent like six weeks kind of only talking in Chinese during the day to these kids and just kind of watching them blossom using easy words that we think they might understand to describe kind of complex details was something that I think as a as a non-native speaker in the classroom, I was able to do pretty well because you, that's just part of learning, right? That's part of your scaffolding where you, you don't know how to say everything. So you have to get a little bit creative to be understood if you want to go that route. Uh, you know, can look in dictionaries and, and find the exact word. But if you don't have your dictionary in front of you or you want to just kind of be involved in a conversation, then you're kind of forced to do this. I think the other thing from from my perspective, you know, being a teacher, it was wonderful to be able to share with students some of my own struggles along the way or come up with some tips or tricks or just being able to relate to someone when they're when they're having a problem and know, hey, I was there once. Right. And you can overcome this was really kind of nice. I also taught uh, at a weekend school when I was an undergrad, but that was for native Taiwanese students. Like uh, their parents were native Taiwanese and they grew up in America. And so I was there. I was the Gaoji uh, like teacher. So this was like the top level. And uh, it was really interesting. I was very nervous at the time, but it was like their thought was, hey, here's a foreigner who can read and write very well. And maybe he can encourage our kids to kind of do the same thing, which was which was really weird. It was kind of like a mind twist. I was not expecting it at all when they gave me the <laughs> the position, but I was happy to kind of do it, right? It was it was a lot of fun. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I think the learner's perspective is, it's really important and really in any type of education. And really that's something that, you know, John and I, we, we started Manor Companion based on that concept of having that learner's perspective that we know what it's like. Because that's really important have, as a teacher, being able to relate with your students. It's, it's, I think it's really critical. 
Yeah, I, I, I do think it is. And obviously, if you're a native speaker and a teacher, right, you don't have that experience. And I think that's okay, too, right? Uh, but at the early level, looking at a lot of programs and hearing, you know, like going to ACTFL in the past, the American Council for Foreign Language Teachers and things and going to these conferences, you know, I think in, in foreign language space, there is a huge desire to have a 50-50 split of native and non-native speakers that are educators. Having that experience, being able to relate to students in that way is incredibly powerful, especially at the early level. Um, and then at some point, unless your Chinese is really, really, really good, right? Like hand it over to a pro. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. Both perspectives are important and I think necessary. So Jake, it looks like you really achieved a high level proficiency of Chinese. What are some of the key struggles you had along the way? I mean, did you ever feel like giving up at some point along the program? Uh, in undergrad, not so much. When I got to grad school, though, uh, it I was in Taiwan. I was back in, um, I was at National Taiwan Normal University doing a teaching uh, degree for teaching Chinese as a second language. And my, that first semester, like textbooks in Chinese, lectures in Chinese, essays in Chinese, literally everything in Chinese. I definitely remember a few times where I was sitting there like, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> wow, that must have been really challenging. It was challenging, but it was fun. I mean, it was one of the best ways to take my language to that next level very quickly. Like I didn't have a choice, right? Every single day, it was three, four, five hours of hearing people or speaking with people. And most of my classmates were native speakers. There were often times that I just felt like I'm not ready for this, right? Like my academic, like writing, you know, Chinese style is like, it's not very good. I got to improve it. And words, you're just like, you got to read a textbook. And it's written for native speakers. So how do you do that? Well, how did you do that? The main thing that I did, the first thing that I did actually was I forced myself to make sure that I didn't look up every single word. And that kind of really helped. It's like, look, the reality was I have to read this by tomorrow. And if I want to do that, like I cannot scan everything. I mean, sure, you could pick out, take out Pleco or something and use the, the OCR and really get through. But you know, to, to be able to understand and digest something like that and, and go the next day and kind of hear it in a lecture form, you, you have to understand it at a higher level. So what I started doing, I think at that point, and was like going through and maybe in the first chapter, I was very aggressive about looking up things. Um, hey, this is a word I don't understand. You know, I'm seeing it a lot, right? Start highlighting things and going through and reading like as much as I could at a higher level and then kind of stopping, pausing and going back and kind of looking through the details. How many, you know, how many times does this word come up? Um, you know, and like graded readers, you know, uh, Mandarin Companion, looking at some of these like lists that you have curated, you guys do a great job of this because it's on frequency. But if you're in a textbook and you don't have like a digital form, you kind of got to do that by yourself. And then after a while, once you're kind of familiar with the content, then I think you just got to like, you just got to open the book and read it. Um, and it's, you know, it's not going to be easy, but the more you expose yourself to these things, the more that you give yourself opportunities to speak, to read, to write, whatever, confidence comes with time and experience. How long did it really take you to work through those textbooks to a point where you felt like, okay, I can some, at least semi-comfortably read this book? It was about a semester. Okay. That, you know, actually, I think that's, Pretty good. So I'm going to guess you actually had a pretty good level of comprehension even going in. I, I did. And I was very fortunate. Uh, before I went into the program, I was at a ACC program in China, Associated Colleges of China, and I believe they're still running programs. Um, but I went to a K through 12 
Chinese teacher program, and it was only for non-native speakers, but it was six weeks of immersion Chinese. It allowed me to function in Taiwan as a graduate student who was learning how to be a Chinese educator. Like without that program, I don't think I could have done it. Yeah, I definitely felt that I was like pretty well prepared. Although there's nothing really, you know, if you're at a program in the States um, and you're not living in China or Taiwan and you're trying to do a graduate program, there's just things you're not going to be prepared for. And the only way you do it is just kind of go in and you know, forgive your mistakes and and keep pressing forward. Well, I think that's also good to hear that you have that opportunity for an immersive experience. And you say that's probably what really helped you prepare to go to Taiwan and go through this experience. Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, to anyone listening, if you have the opportunity and it's, you don't necessarily need to travel, right? Technology is so good these days that you can kind of create these opportunities, whether it be with a friendly chat on on one of these apps or or just kind of going to you know a restaurant or something where someone's going to speak Chinese to you. But just putting yourself in those situations and those environments really kind of helps. Like you, you got to use the language. I mean, if I look back on my German experience right from high school, I mean, the reason I didn't know German was because I never used German. So the more that I got to use it, the more exposure I had, like the better I was at Chinese and the more confidence I had. I don't know, thinking back on like over a decade, it's like, oh man, where do we start, Jared? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You know, I once talked to a Chinese teacher and he transformed his teaching style and, and took his students from an intermediate knowledge of Chinese to an intermediate proficiency in Chinese. And and that sounds mm-hmm. a little bit like what you're talking about, even that a little bit of that contrasting between that German experience. You know, you could mm-hmm. study that language like German and you achieve an intermediate knowledge of the language. But in Chinese, you didn't just study about the language. You went to an intermediate proficiency in the language where you're now actually using mm-hmm. it as a tool. Definitely. Well, and the, co- the college experience kind of lended itself to that anyways. It was Chinese five times uh, a week, right? For an hour a day. And you got Chinese club and language partners and like all these different things that I think are kind of critical. I think I think the, the largest takeaway, though, when I when I think about it and start saying these things out loud is like there needs to be something outside of a classroom experience if you want to take your whatever your language to the next level. And here we're talking about Chinese. If you think that you can go to class and just learn enough to, to do it like I don't think that's going to cut it. You know, you got to you got to take it to the next next stage. And I think that's great for our listeners to hear that because on this show, we've had a lot of people who, you know, went to China and they learned Chinese there. But frankly, most people aren't going to have the opportunity to go to China or Taiwan and study Chinese. Right. And so what you're kind of outlining here are like, these are ways that you can obtain a proficiency in the language without actually having to go to Asia. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely possible. There are people that do it all the time. It's hard to say, right? I, I don't know exactly the best advice to give here because I was I was kind of an outlier and I was super fortunate that I had all these opportunities. But like seeing some of my other classmates do this as well, you know, it's like it is that kind of getting yourself that extra exposure. You know, you can listen to songs, you can watch movies, you can go to a restaurant, you like you can engage with people. We live in a global enough world where uh, these opportunities are out there, even if you're not, you know, in in the target language culture uh, all the time, and you can still make it happen. I think that's always a b- big reason why we promote our graded readers. In fact, there's other graded readers out there, but mm-hmm. we, we'd say pretty much read because there's a great quote from an educator from Oxford, uh, Christine Nuttall, and she says, the best way to learn a language is to go live among the native speakers. The second best way is to read extensively in that language. Mm, and so, I, you know, having... I agree reading materials at your level, I mean, that that brings that native level, that immersive experience to you. I mean, I can't agree with that quote more. And I think that it's very important 
when we think about kind of communication to understand and, and, and remember that like reading and writing is a very, very, very important form of communication. And it's something that you don't need someone else to participate with you. If you're willing to read, right? If you're willing to kind of take the time to do these things um, and, and maybe learn characters or things like that, like the amount of knowledge and resources that you have are nearly infinite at that point. Open books, find things that you like, um, you know, find authors that you like, listen to movies, you know, watch, read the subtitles, like whatever it is, you can be exposed. But if you, if you're reading, any time can be an opportunity to learn if you're willing to open a book. Even you, what you're doing right now with Scritter, it seems to me that literacy is something that's really important to you and even to your company. Oh, absolutely. You know, with, with Scritter, I mean, it's definitely not a one-stop shop. Well, tell us real quick, Jake, for everyone, what exactly is Scritter and how does it work? Sure. So Scritter, it started as a website. It was founded in 2008 by three guys. And they created this application because they were in college. And, you know, every day you go to college in your Chinese class and you have your ting shia. So you got to like listen to what the teacher says and write things down. And like characters, I think for a lot of foreigners, um, they look a little scary and intimidating. I always say they look like spooky animals. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, and learning them is is not, it takes time and energy, right? And And one of the ways that we do this. And one of the ways that I'm definitely guilty of doing this uh, in the past is like Chaoxia to just copy something down over and over again. So get your character. Hey, I have this tomorrow. I'm going to write it a hundred times. And that's really good for short-term memory, but it, it's not very good for long-term memory. So Scritter was uh, designed as an, an SRS system, space repetition. Then the focus of Scritter being uh, to write Chinese characters. So Scritter was designed to kind of solve that problem a little bit. So it's a blank canvas that comes up. We give you kind of the opinion for a word. We give you the definition for the word. And then we ask you to write it. We help you kind of, you know, solidify stroke order when you're writing Chinese and kind of character composition, you know, how the parts combine to make characters. Uh, and that was what Scritter was for a very long time. Uh, and now we're trying to teach you a little bit more. So we take you through that stroke order. We show you what the character looks like. We let you engage with it. Uh, we let you test on it so you can get your reps in so that you feel confident going into those tests the next day. And then we couple that with the SRS system now. It's one of the better study tools out there if you are a, a student who's kind of taking Chinese every single day and you and you need to read and write it very well. I once got a text message from a friend. Well, I didn't know it was a friend at the time. It was just a text message, and it was just typed out in pinyin. It was so awkward. I was, like, reading this pinyin, like, sentences. Did you? Could you make sense of it? I, I could, but it was hard. I had to first kind of just focus and read it and try to, okay, put characters in the place of the pinyin uh, in my mind. And then I'm like, oh. And so I typed back in characters, and I said, oh, do you mean this? And the person replies back in pinyin saying like, uh, well, Kambudong. He's like, I, I can't read the characters. And it turns out it was a friend. He got a new phone and he'd been learning mm -hmm. how to speak Chinese and he learned pinyin, but he hadn't learned any characters. So he was typing out to me in pinyin and it was, it was very awkward. One thing I've also experienced is that when you learn to write some of the characters, it helps you break apart those components, the different radicals. And things oh, absolutely. Like that. You see it more readily than you would if you didn't absolutely. know how to write it. You know, the, the nice thing about Scritter, not to spend too much time plugging Scritter, right? Because that's not really why we're here. But most of the time, if you don't have the raw squigs setting on, which is a way of kind of writing your own strokes and, and really judging them against kind of a more perfect form, you snap the strokes in, we make them look beautiful. Your characters look very good, but you get this endless kind of repetition of writing all of these different characters. And so you get really comfortable with the stroke order, which kind of allows you to, to read characters a lot more quickly in the wild. 
I will say I love that about Scritter, about how when I write a character or I, I put a stroke in, it kind of snaps it in to the character and makes it all look nice. So you're like, it makes you feel like your handwriting's much better than it actually is. Yeah, it makes you, makes you feel good. And I think, I think that for most people, right, like that is probably sufficient enough. You know, I, I would never pretend to claim that I can write everything that I can say. Um, you know what I mean? Like there's still going to be struggles. But I do think that, you know, once you get to a certain point, if you're, if you're looking to take your Chinese to that kind of intermediate or advanced level or intermediate advanced, there does need to be some degree of competency when it comes to reading and writing. And having that baseline of, I, you know, I don't know how many characters I would recommend for someone to actually be able to read and write very proficiently, but I think it's definitely above zero. Um, <laughs> and it's uh, you know, like you said, when you start writing characters and when you start reading characters, you do start to put those connections together. You start to see the duplication. You know, there there are a lot of characters in the world, but there's only so many that are kind of used day to day. And so breaking those down into components and kind of familiarizing yourself with them, it does help you kind of unlock the language faster, I would say, than someone who is just saying, hey, characters don't exist um, or I don't need to read and write them. It's like, uh, maybe you don't, maybe you can survive, but you don't want to be the guy that's sending the pinyin text and saying, well, kanbu dong hanzi. So Jake, I'm also interested in hearing about any breakthrough experiences you had while you were learning Chinese. You know, there, there will come a duration of time. And I think for me, it was, it was definitely sped up by being abroad. But unfortunately, I don't have like a, oh, you must do like 500 hours of listening or something like that. But I will say that uh, one of the breakthrough moments was just, you know, a couple years in, two years in, let's call it, where it went from always kind of struggling with what I was hearing to just hearing what I was hearing and, and, and kind of having the language just sound right in my head. And that was, it was a, it was a beautiful day. And there was a, there was a one day, I think, you know, when I was abroad where I like had the Chinese dream <laughs> and that was really cool. Reading a book for the first time was a very big level up moment for me. Uh, my first book that I read in Chinese uh, cover to cover was Ender's Game, actually. It was a transliteration. It was a translation of, but I loved that book in English. Orson Scott Card. Orson Scott Card, man. And I listened to the audiobook when I was uh, a little bit younger. And so I, I just like loved this thing. So I found that it had a Chinese version. Oh, wow. We, we actually talked to Orson Scott Card about potentially doing a Manor Companion version out of his Ender's Game, but uh, may not work out. Ah, that's too bad. That would be super fun. So, but, I, you know, reading this book cover to cover was a, one of those things where it's like, hey, I can do, like, I can, I can do this, right? It was a, it was a, a personal accomplishment. Um, and I think that, you know, thinking about this and just hearing myself out loud talk about these things, oftentimes the level up moments for me or these kinds of feelings of, hey, I've taken my Chinese to the next level, they were goal driven. I would set myself some kind of a goal. Hey, I want to be able to do this in the language and work toward it. And when I accomplished those goals, I mean, I felt really good and I definitely learned a lot of things along the way. That's really insightful. And I think that's helpful, I think, for a lot of people realizing, hey, maybe these uh, breakthrough moments, they don't just need to you know, happen, happenstancely, so, so to say, but these can be goal-driven. Yeah, I think you need to make them happen, right? You know, if we think about anything that we're doing in life, if you set your goal as like, I'm going to be a pro and that's it, and you stop there and you're like, yeah, whatever happens in between, it's going to be very hard to kind of to get there. But if you start as a beginner and you say, hey, you know, I want to be able to, you know, introduce myself in Chinese or ask what someone's name is or whatever and set these smaller goals, accomplishing those makes you feel good. And it also allows you to set 
the next goal once you accomplish it and just kind of move on and on and on. So maybe right now you're thinking, hey, I want to be able to do X, Y, and Z in Chinese, like break that down into smaller goals, you know, look at those components uh, and and start small. Um, And really, I think providing yourself like daily opportunities to level up um, is really important. So maybe, you know, listen to a podcast once a day in Chinese or read an article in Chinese, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. But doing it in smaller chunks is really going to allow you accomplish that larger goal. So Jake, is there any advice that you give to someone who's learning Chinese right now? One of the most important things for me was make sure that Chinese was not something that I was doing in a vacuum in my life. So if I think back to like my book goal, uh, you know, reading Ender's Game in Chinese, like I like sci-fi a lot. And so taking that kind of taking science fiction as a genre and saying, hey, how can I expose myself to science fiction in Chinese uh, was was a way that I could kind of connect part of myself to the language that I was studying. Uh, when I was in Taiwan, uh, I'm also uh, an avid biker. I really enjoy riding bicycles. And I ended up finding like a crew of people in Taiwan that shared the same passion as me. And being able to kind of communicate with them about something that I was already interested in of reduced a lot of that stress and that pressure. I had that background knowledge. So it was just adding Chinese to these concepts that I already understood. So we live in this beautiful world now where everyone is connected to the internet and we can get access to whatever information we want. So I think one of the ways that might make it easier to learn Chinese um, and to maybe have more fun with it is to find things that you are interested in and see if you can't make them, you know, Chineseify them in some way. Uh, you know, so finding those hobbies, those interests, you know, finding people that have like-minded views or whatever and communicating with them in the language, um, it helps. You know, you're bridging that gap and you're and you're connecting it to a part of yourself. Uh, And the more that you do that, I think the easier and the more fun you're going to have along the way. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, painter, chemist, vet, surfer, stuntman, architect, carpenter, dog walker, marine biologist, and that one guy named Mike. You can subscribe to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at MandarinCompanion.com. Apologies to Mark Zuckerberg. We just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner. And I'd like to thank Jacob Gill and my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pazden. See you next time.